I'm Roxy Power, your host for the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. I'm talking today with Rodrigo Toscano, a poet and dialogist based in New Orleans. He's the author of 10 books of poetry, including his most recent, The Charm and the Dread, Fence Books 2022. The Cut Point from Counterpath Press may be published by the time we air. His previous books include In Range, Explosion Rocks, Springfield, Deck of Deeds, Collapsible Poetics Theater, a National Poetry Series selection, and several others. His poetry has appeared in Best Experimental Poetry and Best American Poetry. He received a New York State Fellowship in Poetry and the Edwin Markham 2019 Prize in Poetry. His works have been translated into French, Dutch, Italian, German, Portuguese, Norwegian, and Catalan. Toscano is the project manager for the Labor Institute and works with many organizations, including Northwest tribes around labor justice, health, and safety. Ariana Reigns writes about the charm and the dread. Rodrigo Toscano has a vision. He calls it hemispheric autarky, and it's a post-border, post-left, post-BS utopia. First, I just want to say how excited that you are my first interview on The Hive. As a fellow performance poet, you're someone that I really love performing with, and labor activist, uh, trying to bridge the art activism divide. I'm super honored that you're talking with me today. Oh, it's great. I think that those connections are, are something we share for sure, um, you know, pushing the envelope and in, in art and, and imagining ways that society could, could be improved and, and transformed. To frame our conversation, you call yourself a dialogist. I would also call you a dialectical poet mitigating opposition so the reader can't land inside of compulsory conviction, the title of one of your poems, in fact. Your poems are open, inspiring curiosity rather than position marking. You ask questions. Why girls? Why boys? Why anyone at all? You engage us in the question, is there a way that poets view the world that can help the rest of the culture without falling into what Keats called the egotistical sublime? You invent neologisms like autarky, A-U-T-A-R-K-Y, that seem to be a mashup of anarchy and autocracy with a spelling that makes me think of rural working class sites like Arkansas or identities like Oki. Your poems engage the usual poetic subjects, nature and the meaning of life, while folding in the language of finance, labor and global capitalism. Will you tell us briefly about your background from San Diego to New Orleans that brought you to your position as a major poet working outside of academia on such big issues? Yeah, well, um, you know, ever since I was young, I had a, an, in, an interest both in, in intellectual and artistic things. And at the same time, um, you know, my life took a trajectory um, wherein um, I, you know, I, I ended up um, working uh, directly on on issues of labor and environment and, and public health um so I, I i was born in san diego i grew up there and um you know i had a uh, family on both sides of the border i grew i grew up uh completely bilingual as a matter of fact spanish is my is my first language and 
from there, from San Diego, um, after working in, in computer factories and being a sort of a fierce autodidact, you know, reading complex books on my own and not really on the college trajectory. Um, and uh, so I, I, I moved to San Francisco to be part of the larger um, the poetry scene there and spent the 90s there. And while I was there, I also worked um, for for labor um, unions and and uh, and community groups and whatnot. And then from there, I jumped over to New York and and pretty much did the same thing. But but this time, I joined uh, what's called a you know a think tank, which is a sort of strategizing um, outfit that works uh, with I- issues of of labor and environmental um, you know environmental issues. And so. In the New York, obviously, I was part of the, the experimental poetry scene there, and spent sixteen years there. You know, making a lot of good friends, um, not only that live there but internationally. And then, about seven and a half years ago, I moved down to New Orleans, and uh, you know, still working for the Labor Institute on on projects nationally, and have been trying to lend a hand in building a very vibrant, I believe, very vibrant uh, New Orleans poetry scene. Which is really exciting. Um, I'm so excited, uh, looking forward to the New Orleans Poetry Festival, for example, that you help out with every year. Now let's get going with some poems. How about we look at the first poem in your two most recent books, which focus on breathing, creating a connection between what now feels to me like companion books. I'll quote briefly from The Charm and the Dread, a meditation in the time of COVID, then ask you to read us Magnolias, the first poem from The Cut Point. The Charm and the Dread begins... Take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out. Then moves onto the kinds of bizarre observations one has when meditating sometimes. Trees are hilarious. Grass is hilarious. Then later, the charm of a medevac helicopter, the dread of a failed meditation, the charm of a virus on your fingertip, the dread of a failed meditation. Thus begins a pattern of related dualities, the in-breath, the out-breath, and so-called good and bad. There's definitely charm and dread around COVID, but kind of in reverse here. A failed meditation becomes the dreaded event. As someone who tries to meditate, I totally get that. Magnolias also focuses on breathing, but now in the context of global warming. Can you read it? All right. Magnolias. This shade-casting magnolias getting involved with your breathing, or is it better put, was always involved with your breathing. This shade-casting magnolia is oblivious to poetic encirclement, or is it better put, becoming aware of escape routes. You're reading about colonialism again? You're writing about material entanglement? You're vocalizing empire's crack-up again? Shaded and shading magnolias, maybe like 20 after hard rain, make a point at midday. The sun quacking on about technique. This not being cobble, this being cobble after all. Radiative, global, new grammar. Magnolias, moist and steamy, vanishing from the scene. Poof, that is, dragooned to the task and hating it. Yeah, 
I'd hate it too if I were a magnolia. Uh, this feels like an eco poem and at the same time a commentary on an eco poem. Many of my notes read things like meta sonnet. Um, this is not a sonnet, but it's a dialogue between nature and nationalism, mental and material entanglements, a magnolia talking to the poet, throwing shade at the poet sitting who's sitting under its shade, writing about colonialism and empires crack up again. Themes in previous books, especially the last one, the magnolia making a point about that, as well as the sun making points, which reminds me of, you know, Frank O'Hara's talking to uh, the sun talking with the sun at fire island hey i've been trying to wake you up for 15 minutes don't be so rude you're only the second poet i've ever chosen to speak to personally so you've got you know quirky moments of language quacking on poof and um you've got serious issues like global <clears throat> warming and extinction implied all in this kind of a miasma which is the title of another poem but you know oppressive atmosphere that that kind of makes us feel a little uneasy about breathing and dragooning. So what are we dragooning the magnolia to? Well, and I think that this being dragooned uh, to the task is, uh, you know, and, and hating it, what, what that it is, is, um, you know, you might say the, the inception of the poem itself, right? Like what brought uh, somebody uh, to the table to respond to some of this stuff. Uh, for example, the, the devolution of, of an empire um, with all the sort of risks and danger that that involves, right? Um, when you have a sort of geopolitical, you know, um, tectonic plates, you know, rubbing against each other and, and power vacuums, it's, it can be a potentially very dangerous situation. It can also be a very transformative, um, you know, predicament. And so um, I think, I, you know, just listening to myself read this poem, I, I realized this, a word there that that really sticks out is uh, involved, you know, getting involved, was always involved. And, and, and I think that this speaks to the sort of interrelatedness of phenomenon, not only in the, in the political realm, but also in the way that, that poetics, you know, actually by definition is bringing, you know, things together into one, one whole. Right. So the it, I would say, is that process, that drive, that um, prompt, that 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 wants to bring these things together. And there's a negativity, obviously, involved. They're dragooned to the task, right? Because kind of if you know that culture arises in some ways or another um, from sort of political, um, you know, predicaments then necessarily no matter how um peaceful or or you know um pastoral uh, a, a vision you might have that it that it probably is is wrought from you know these these antagonisms in the world right and i think that's been the case you know since like virgil's georgics right when virgil writes the georgics and all that's like you know during the augustan period of roman expansion right whenever you get you know the pastoral symphony of of beethoven the sixth that's in the midst of the napoleonic wars and so i think by now the mask has been pulled off and all our impulses toward the the the, the you know the pastoral are involved with um you know states and uh, antagonisms within states. Not, yeah, not, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Speaking of pulling the mask off, we're going to talk about your poem, Maskers, in just a second. Um, I'm Roxy Power, your host with 
the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. So let's move on to one of the mini sonnets in The Charm and the Dread. They're about, um, there are two about COVID facing each other on pages six and seven, Maskers and Miasma. Maskers is a bit more straightforward and sets the scene almost like a play between characters during the time of COVID, which we're still in, um, who have agency with their masks and science, though there's claustrophobia from the masks. And right next door, Miasma comments on, quote, the globe's entire surface of meaning being wiped clean by, quote, the choreography of the miasma. The virus has agency here as we watch a million names flicker out. Of course, miasma means an oppressive atmosphere. Um, how about you just read Maskers for us? Sure. Uh, maskers. I, I should mention this poem was written in, in April of 2020. People can sort of dial back and remember what that felt like. Maskers. People will forget or want to forget all this rubbish of masks, all this haggling, the so-called tough non-masker, the said weak. You can see some here, young, at River's Edge, fully masked quartet, likely monster-free, with shield and sword, phalanx facing the foe, someone else's death, not their own. They stand stoutly defend their people, all people, while popping or trying to pop pink champagne, spilling over muffled conversation. One springs up to take a gulp, six feet off, and here comes a fifth, black, bloody fanged mask, completing the quintet, soon forgotten, save for this sonnet straining against it. Fantastic. Um, so this one feels, compared to the one next door to it, more straightforward on the surface, kind of um, just talking about masks rather than the global's entire surface of meaning being wiped clean as in miasma. Um, but I'm wondering if you want to just say a few words about breath again, because that final line, or maybe just couplet, uh, refers to uh, masks, um, a fifth one. You you often count things in your poems, I noticed, um, but there's a fifth mask arrives, completing the quintet, soon forgotten, save for this sonnet, straining against it. Yeah. So pretty close. Yeah. So, so like I said at the beginning of the poem, you know, people will forget or want to forget all this. You know, uh, during the, the, uh, the pandemic of, um, you know, 19, uh, 1919, mm -hmm. uh, I believe it was, um, you know, by the time you get to uh, the 1930s, um, you know, people aren't talking about it anymore. Um, you know, some books are written about it uh, decades after. But basically, in the, in the popular uh, in imagination, people are were, were just so traumatized by the whole thing. They just moved on collectively, you know. Um, so I think I was aware of that. And I was aware that all these sort of, you know, whether they were good intentions or bad intentions, good faith, bad faith, whatever, all this stuff would just want to just fold up into, into oblivion. And so that's why I say at the end there, you know, and I think it's, I think it's a charming thing. Somebody, you know, one, one, one other young person shows up with a bloody fang mask, you know, mm -hmm. with like teeth and blood and, all, and it completes the, the quintet and, you know, and it will, will be soon forgotten. And I say, you know, save for this sonnet straining 
against it, that it's straining against, you know, forgetfulness. Against and forgetfulness. I, yeah. Nietzsche always said we should do in order to be able to live our lives, which sometimes you have to, right? Um, you have to forget things like the, yeah. the, the, the first pandemic. Although if you do, then you are not paying attention to what you, I, I would say, call the cut point in, in what I think is going to be a really important poem the title poem from your forthcoming collection. Um, and, you know, that that maybe maybe the first, you know, the flu um, of 1919 was a cut point that we ignored and failed to take action on it. And we have another opportunity now um, before the globe's entire surface of meaning is wiped clean, as you say in miasma. But why don't we, why don't we do a little conversation between these two books? Because I feel like they are in conversation with each other. And um, you know, certainly the sonnets that are that, that are speckled throughout this one um, is a really interesting conversation piece about trying to contain this chaos that that you kind of invent tropes to to contain forms like sonnets, tropes like the cut point. Um, now let's talk about that trope, the cut point, and perhaps read that poem aloud for us next. Okay, so you know the cut point. I think. Um... Is, is a phenomenon. Actually, it's a it's a, a, ge uh, a geometrical, you know, topological um, concept that has to do um, with you know two lines meeting two other lines, you know, in that system of geometry. Like you might think like a figure eight, uh, where they meet. That's a cut point in that system. Now, there's there's other um, in other systems cut points. You might think of like um, a sort of. Uh, uh, a quantitative state um, turning into a qualitative change, like you might say, like boiling water, you know, the agitation of, of molecules, do you reach a certain point? And then now it's, the, you know, the water goes from liquid form to, um, to vapor form. And that's a cut point in that system. So I was thinking about that in general, like what, what are the cut points of things? And, but I wanted to bring that to the social and I should say before I read this poem, the cut point. There's a there's a big word in there, a big phrase. It's an ancient Greek um, phrase, you know. And the phrase is "zuon politikon," and that's um, Greek, ancient Greek for a uh, political animal. That comes from Aristotle in his sort of speculation that you know that humans were you know primarily a political animal. So this one's called the cut point. The trashmen do come, and that's a miracle on top of the marvel of home water heaters and central air cooling. Your whole life is brained up by designs of others alongside others executing plans. This density of intentions is the world you navigate, even in sleep. There's a grand rebellion against this world taking many forms. One such one is lyric poetry. These failed rebellions deepen the myths we tell ourselves about ourselves in kooky ways. Why has everything become rejoinders, rejoinder on rejoinder, this ceaseless chatty inflation? The trashmen know the cut point. AC repair crews know the cut point. Some poets, maybe. The density is we, the needle to cloth is we, and surely the rivet to plate. 
is Zuon Politikon. The likes and follows do come dressed as miracles, vaguely intentional, fizzling fast. Behold is an old word meant to behold what's beholden to something, say this tub faucet. The density of intention here calls up legions of poetic actors pushing limits. The water that flows is a cut point. The pipes that held it are cut points. The dam, the dials. But what about clouds? Have we rebelled against wily whisperings? Are clouds merely constructivisms? No matter, the trashmen have arrived on top of the marble of a number two pencil tracking the point. Right. You know, I teach a course called um, The Politics and Ethics of Emerging Technologies, and we do talk about the pencil to, uh, you know, forms of AI. And it and it, it feels like there are, there are cut points, both poetical and technological and um laboristically, I guess, sprinkled yeah. poem. Um, so I, you know, I think okay. poetry is a cut point, right? And, and poetry yeah, exactly. in her section with um, giving voice to the democratic revolutions in France and America. And so I wander lonely as a cloud, um, you know, which is, you know, Wordsworth was kind of a, a trust fund baby, unlike um, maybe Blake, um, giving voice to the to the working class people um, in that the cut point of romantic poetry. But when you when you talk about clouds as merely constructivisms or everything kind of constructed with an intentional design here, um, where we bring where we bring what we observe almost into the realm of our consciousness and how it serves us, the things that are left out often are the workers and how they serve our identities. Um, so I'm wondering if you if you want to talk about how the trashmen and AC repair crews know what a cut point is, and some poets, which I would venture to say, like you might know it as well 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 you know i think it's a matter of seeking it i think that with um you know like ac repair crews you know there's certain points of, of material engagement that can be you know known and repeated and there are there are moments of exploration there in any sort of mechanical problem but not nearly as problematic as as poetics right where there's a proliferation of problems because because you know words themselves are are sort of um you know they have multiple uh points of access you know depending where you're come, where a listener is coming from or a reader and so the equation of what would be a cut point in a poetic is very very hard to sort of pin down but you do it by by way of of, of analogy right that's why i bring up like ac crews and and all this kind of stuff the technicality of it and at the end uh, as you pointed out um, you know, on top of the marvel of a number two pencil tracking the point. And, and that's and that's really the author, right? At some point, the author of this poem, you know, was using a, a number two pencil and was trying to track the point, right? The point of the poem, the cut point of the poem. And it's just sort of a reflexive moment um, in that poem where, you know, like I also, and I do this quite often, actually, if you notice in my poetry, I always include the process of the poem itself as as counting 
um, as as content, right? The, the the process that led to the composition of the poem is is itself a, a subject matter in in you know in the poem. I see that, um, and I hope that we will get to talk about some of your poetry about poetics and the way in which you include the process without it becoming or becoming reduced to a poem merely of your own experience. Your reflexivity or commentary on your process of composition has, um, in your words, a density of intentions, it seems. It's also kind of a grand rebellion through the usual modes of lyric poetry. Or, you know, as you say, the myths that we tell ourselves about ourselves in, quote, kooky ways. And I know that all of us can relate to everything in this political climate becoming rejoinders to rejoinders, um, the punditocracy, I guess, this ceaseless chatty inflation of likes and follows. And um, as you talk about zoon politikon, political animals, um, I'd also say that we're herd animals that mindlessly follow bad leaders. Um, so I, I've, you do call yourself a dialogist. And so the question is begged, who are you talking to? Who do you envision as your likely audiences since workers don't have time to read poetry much? Um, and are you mostly trying to bring their existence onto the radars of poets, many of whom are laborers, many in the fields of adjunct work where I do my labor activism, and many of whom are academics with lifelong jobs who will never be, in your words, um, in a different poem, swapped out. But it seems like when you write poems like this or the next one I'm going to have you read called uh, Lineman from the same collection, it seems like you're trying to bring the existence of workers into the consciousness of your readers, which who, who do you envision as your readers, your audience? Your OK, readers? well, first of all, that's thanks for that question. That's a very that's a very important question, I think. Um, first of all, in terms of, you know, um, you know, when 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 we say who are you trying to reach that is like me um, you know what's what's so often sort of understood you know that to be is that i'm a singularity right that when you speak to me what's coming out of my mouth is coming from a sort of location that my ego is in you know in in charge of and all this kind of stuff. i'm not saying you but i'm saying one assumes that we have to for the most part to get on through the day um, but then, so since I don't look at myself as a singularity, I look at, 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 at these dialogues that are sort of going through me, these social strands of concerns, right? Then I assume that the, uh, the, the, the spectator or listener or, or audience is also not a singularity, but is a sort of nexus by from which um, things kind of flow through. So there's all these different flows, you might say, of, of, of dialogue and concerns. And so I, I assume that that's the case. So what it is, it's uh, it's not like a me to somebody, but rather is a, is a something brought through me that will kind of move through you that you'll understand variously, right? Um, at different points. Let me let me boil that down to a simple equation if I can here. Um, it sounds cliched. But uh, people will get different things from the same poem. Mm -hmm. And I assume that. So I don't try to force the 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 content into top you know what's called topicality, where you could say very simply, oh, what's that? And you haven't asked me, and that that shows your in my estimation, your sophistication. It, you know, you don't you don't ask like, what's the poem about? What's the lineman about? You know, you you engage it as 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 a as a, as a, as a sort of collection of of heterogeneous materials. 
that and then in fact um you know didn't come from issue from a single unified brain if that makes sense right you seem to critique line line based thinking in poems like brown lives matter um um which we'll get to i hope in a bit but and and just you contain multitudes um of of the other like Mex the mexican poet octavio octavio paz writes and the other voice all poets in the moments long or short of poetry if they really are poets hear the other voice they are the other so i feel that you other yourself in really interesting ways um and step outside the lines even boxes as you write about in uh, brown lives later uh but let's let's go back to some lines and let's go to line men okay i'll just read this poem uh lineman um i should i should well i'll just read it first and then we'll talk about um uh, linemen Thirty thousand linemen in bucket trucks streaming into your distressed environs hitting 16-hour shifts, repairing lines that keep your identities well-lit, the lines that give your power distinctions the punch they need to remain aesthetic. That is, when the lines are down, days on end, your projects oblivious to these men and the striving families they're part of start losing power hour by hour. By around the fifth day, you're like the rest overheated, exhausted, half crazy, and perhaps becoming dimly aware, linemen have zero power in the arts. I'm speaking with Rodrigo Toscano, who certainly does have the power in the arts about his recent books, The Charm and the Dread and The Cut Point. You can learn more about him at rodrigotoscano.com. I'm Roxy Power, your host with the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM. You can find us on Facebook, tw Twitter, and hivepoetry.org. I know our audience can relate to y'all losing power during Hurricane Ida, during our late winter rainstorms by, quote, around the fifth day, as you say, we too were like the rest, exhausted, half crazy, and dimly aware. Linemen have zero power in the arts. Um, up here in the Santa Cruz Mountains, where I live, we had no power um, for about two weeks. We went from irritation at our identities, not being, as you say, well lit, to wondering how to do our jobs or even get um, out to do get groceries. As water and hillsides slid, um, and electric poles fell onto roadways, blocking us. And of course, we developed a much greater awareness and appreciation for the linemen. Linemen have zero power in the arts partly because they're not represented in the arts, partly because power is multiply configured as not only electrical power, but, but power in terms of the complicated comments that you're making about identity throughout both books, right? You're trying to uh, complexify identity politics in ways that don't, are not just reducible to mere representation. Um, and yet, uh, the, the lines that give your power distinctions, the punch they need to remain aesthetic. You hear the irony, you hear the irony there as, as you seem to be speaking to an audience of poets who are maybe looking at the role that linemen are playing in keeping their identities lit. So um, before we move to other poems about identity, you wanna say something to set up your poetics about identity? Um, well, let me let me sort of touch on on the linemen a little bit, and then we'll segue into into the next poem. Um, I think that you said it really, really well. I think um, that uh, that it's that before 
um, you know, we get involved in um, in matters of, of, of culture and transmissions of culture. We have to get in, in, involved in in that all that which you know goes to to buttress to support all those all those systems, those aesthetic systems and concerns, right? And and those are often you know things that determine our existence. Like obviously, like in our time, you know, electricity, running water, sewage, you know, medical care or lack thereof, um, you know, transportation or things. So so when these things go 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 kerfluey and they're no longer operative, then it sort of sheds a spotlight on their absence, and you realize that these matters which we've been calling you know, representation and, and self-identity or what all this stuff are really just um, that there's a deeper sort of uh, level at which they operate. And that's the level of what I would say is material determination, you know, and it's, and it's those things that sort of intersect with one's own views that brings, you know, art and, and its concerns to, to, to the top. We should segue to insurrectionary because I think it makes a really interesting companion piece across these two books to Lineman, which can be found on page 12 of The Charm and the Dread. Um, and in this poem, I would just like to say opens up some of the larger existential questions that I see you asking throughout this collection, including um, other sonnets like this is a sonnet, a sonnet like Mysterium. Um, a less, you know, a poem with with more accessible, less of a Shakespearean tone, as I I think of some of your poems having. Um, but it's a feels like a Petrarchan sonnet with a volta or a, a little turn in the middle, where you ask the big question about what what what's life for and what do people want? Can, can you read mm -hmm. that? Thanks. Yeah, no, I, just a slight comment on that. I think that you're right. I, I sort of vacillate between the. Petrarchan um, modality of, of sonnets, which actually gets sort of picked up through through John Donne, and but I also do sort of Miltonic kind of um, you know Milton type <laughs> like sonnets that just kind of sweep through, like you know like 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 from beginning to end with very few um, you know uh, you know ways to sort of to channel meaning, but just kind of way through. And I think insurrectionary is one of those sort of. Uh, more Milton. Funny, Rodrigo, because I, I I erased from my notes um, that one of your poems did remind me of the metaphysical poets of John Donne. I didn't want to get into that, but it does feel like you yeah. do a rail against um, conditions, or or sometimes have conversations with them and invite them yeah. in. Not it's death, or like he did, death be not proud. But uh, but I think that in some ways yours are conversations with uh, capitalism. Yeah, yeah. No, if you think about a John Donne sonnet, like you know, thou hast made me then shall thy work decay repair me now for now mine end doth haste okay so the, to take in that kind of thing so i have I, you know i had to run in with done as a young person okay so here goes insurrectionary the day-to-day -day existence of people if that doesn't change then what is all this these protests these stances rage pieties passionate words eloquent eloquent poetry What's the use of it today if tomorrow and many days to come aren't shaped differently, aren't lived differently? Which calls the question, what do people want? What do they want? Not just what they don't want. Let's list it. Let's study the list closely. And before these items get are pinned to life, 
let's have that conversation. What is life? What kinds of life forms are we? All of us. And what's best for each and everyone here? Well, you know, both of us are labor organizers, and as such, we we know, we've read the manual, that we're supposed to be having conversations with workers, right? So we're supposed to be asking them, what do you want? <laughs> what, what do you want out of your life? And I think you're trying mm-hmm. to, in some ways, um, bring the big, heady questions of existentialism and the authentic life, you know, where you're, you're making choices around your life path. Um, which you ironize about in other poems, you know, you, you have a choice here. And yet, do you have many choices in this um, capitalist autarky? But if we if we don't shape or live our lives differently, which it will call the question, not just what we don't, what, what we don't want, because I think your poems are pretty op- optimistic in many ways, but what do we want? And you don't presume to answer. You're just, you're opening the head of the, of the reader to ask that question for themselves. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder if you do have an answer. What is best for each of us here? Well, I mean, one way to sort of think about it is, you know, the Greeks um, had this this term, um, you know, eudaimonia, which generally means uh, human flourishing. And so, it, you know, every every different uh, sort of philosopher had had a sort of take on that. Like, for example, um, Epicurus, you know, posited that that one of the things that was desirable for human flourishing was not to be afraid of death mm. itself mm. And, and also to create a, a, a close circle of friends that you could rely on um you know uh that for epicure among many other things that was for epicurious um version of eudaimonia, eudaimonia or, or human flourishing you know i i, I think um uh you know, obviously, um, you, you know, you don't want to be, you know, in a state of depravity, uh, you know, like thirsty, hungry. Um, you know, I think that that taking care, taking care of the, the basic needs of, of, of life and the body is obviously part of eudaimonia. But and when you have a modern industrialized society, you, you kind of start asking more questions about that, right? Like, what, what do you what do you want? Um, besides that and, and I'm pretty open to be honest with you about that like when I hear discourses um, I think I think in the last I would say 10 years we've heard a lot of really good stuff um, from uh, sort of African-American um, sort of poetics where mm-hmm. where you know people are, are not just talking about um, you know what they don't want but you know they talk about you know um, you know uh, black joy or things like that and it, and it got me to thinking well, okay that's really interesting you know the people are talking about you know the, the positive aspects of what they want and so if, if in, in in trying to sort of achieve those things what what stands in the way right what stands in the way of achieving those those things that, that people want right I, I think um civic um the, the you know the the fair it, it you know you you want to be able to walk through civic society, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that's that feels free to you and unconstricted. Mm-hmm. So if you so so for example, if you know if you if you're if you're if you're a person who who's getting harassed sexually, like in a workplace, obviously that's not eudaimonia, right? That's it's a pain in the ass, and um and so you can do it by subtraction. But I think it's good to do it by addition too. Um, and and those things that are sort of additional are 
um, you might say, I, I like I like vigor. I like celebration of vigor. Um, you know, celebration of children, of of animals, of of speed. Right. Of, of, yeah, of, speed. Of, I mean, and delight. In in your poem, huddle a reverie on antecovidium soirees. You say, mix it uh -huh. up, yeah, delight, folks. Be delighted. In, in in these social spheres that you're talking about, right. sometimes you also critique as spheres of professionalization. And you did mention, you know, the 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 joy in Black Lives Matter, but you also have a poem called the Tango. Sometimes the black white tango wears thin on the rest, and sometimes yeah. the tango between oppositional thinking does, which makes me feel like I, I I think that this is a good time for you to read Brown Lives, a poem about deconstructing that oppositional dance. And looking at more nuanced ideas about identity and the potential joy of brown lives, contending with lived conditions that can't be cured only by solidarity statements like brown lives matter, though such statements do matter. You write, quote, insisting the phrase as is, is sacred, is blurry, happy talk won't supply the flow, presumably of Lana, cash, and energy, joy. Can you read the poem Brown Lives on page 29? Okay. All right. So this one, this one's called uh, Brown Lives. Brown Lives, the phrase, as is, don't matter in Mexico. The shades are endless. Where draw the line? You'd go quite mad. What matters in Mexico is lana, cold cash. How much? how far the flow, what things, what folks you gather around you. Of course, colorism thrives in Mexico, weighs in, tip scales, but saying and insisting brown lives, the phrase, as is, is sacred, is blurry, happy talk. Won't supply the flow, the things, the folks you gather around you. The line, when drawn, would shift yearly, monthly. The haggle would matter to oligarchs a lot. The haggle would matter to academia even more. Brown lives, whole departments might thrive, service lines, blurring oligarchs long game. Still though, colorism thrives in Mexico. It hurts, it works for some, for sure. Same families have winners and losers. It's important to confront colorism, frankly, but Lana, Go see, take in, don't flinch, draws lines on top, down below, both sides, makes box. In Mexico, boxes matter, not lines that shift weekly, daily. You'd go quite mad, demarking where, jumping back, jumping over, vying to drag here to there and back, stuck in a box in Mexico, decaled with brown lives, Matter merch donated by happy oligarchs of oil, of telecom, of finance, beachfront empires, foreground to hillside slums, background to nervous middlings, frozen between, undecided about lines, boxes, which matter and why, earning zeal, spending zeal to audit. Mexico lindo is necessary. The peso plunging today. 10%. Fantastic, Rodrigo. We're, we're in conversation with Rodrigo Toscano, who just read Brown Lives from uh, The Charm and the Dread. And I'm Roxy Power, your host with 
the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. So you complicate the conversation about uh, Brown Lives Matter by adding the preposition to. They matter to oligarchs, right, who instate precarity to control the flow of Lana cash. And uh, they matter to academics, as you say, who haggle over brown lives, who instate precarity to control the flow of coveted lifelong jobs that, you know, avoid precarity. Then you switch from um, uh, these lines that, that you're making connections to, to boxes, another form of demarcation. And you use italics, like you do in so many of your poems, to emphasize that boxes matter, not lines. Boxes connote larger frames bounded by lines, containers of coveted goods shipped in commerce, or um, maybe maybe even containing bodies, coffins, but maybe yeah. boxes that you check for identity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. I like I like all that. Um, that could have that could have been worked into the poem somehow. I feel too. What you just I think it was. I, I got it out of your poem. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I said you translated it. That's good. It, it works. Um, yeah. Well, uh, what was your the your well, I'm just wondering a little bit about identity. Let's focus on identity okay. because it feels like the commentary on the emptiness of certain phrases and merch is, is a way of saying that, that for example, the right has co-opted the tactics, use that word tactics of the left, like reminds me of Bob Dylan doing a Chrysler commercial or or the Taco Bell Chihuahua wearing a Che Guevara beret. There's these, these co-options by oligarchs of this merch, right? Um, so the merch of Brown Lives Matter, these stickers on the boxes, are actually not really helping um, change the lived conditions that you're trying to get people to change, you know, but um, you're, you're putting pressure on in some ways um, the, the superficiality of just, you know, talk, say, slogan, slogan. Oh, slogan. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to preempt, um, you know, um, you know, Latinx, you know, being, you know, Latinx, if you might, you like that term, you know, myself or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to pre preempt a sort of like uh, co-optation by 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 those people of, of the Black Lives, uh, primarily in that sense, but also um, maybe sort of implicitly critiquing, sort of um, just you know sloganeering and 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 sort of you know I'm I'm thinking about you know you know like you know Nancy Pelosi and Kente Cloth taking a knee at the halls of Congress, and then. And then, and then not pushing hard for the child tax credit, you know, which you know, which 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 here in New Orleans would help oodles of of, of black families, um, you know, get out of poverty, you know, and and so I, my emphasis has always been on what what are the material, um, you know, transformations that you can make in people's lives so that they can get on with with living those lives rather than than you know becoming a you know an ally. Uh, you know, uh, of sorts and in some superficial way um, it's, it's not useful at all. And it really, I find it just, you know, just a, a sort of speak, uh, a professional a managerial class speak um, that, uh, that that's, that's rife in, in, in academia. You know, to me, it just sounds uh, a lot of it, uh, you know, I think it's useful for, for sort of analyzing texts for sure. Right. I think I think that, for example, intersectionality, uh, you know, an analysis of a particular text or novel is good. But you know, try that um, that kind of thinking and you know the maneuvers in a in a room full of people that that are doing the same kind of work and trying to, in facing a, a you know a particular employer, 
and 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 those things you know are are, are just come off as, as, as literary exercises you know that that are not um useful at the end of the day and i say this with all due respect to my colleagues i mean poetic colleagues in academia who have tremendous challenges coming down on them um from you know the neoliberal university and its and its demands on on people's you know lives and stuff like that and so i i just i just in this poem i think it i just wanted to sort of make that a little bit clear you know like i want to say yeah of course you know these things count i mean i you know these colorism and, and, and i flushed out as best as i could and it, it actually makes a hell, hell of a difference yeah. at the same time at the same time like i don't want you know bipoc overlords um in society you know <laughs> telling me what to do you know when they're working for capital and finance and all this kind of stuff. I think people get this. It's not complicated what I'm saying at all, I don't think. No, I, I think that you hold both um, things true at once, as you do as, you know, in Hegelian dialectics, both seeming opposite things are true at once. Your your sonic compulsory conviction um, also ironizes on showing, um, you, know, be, you know, communities demanding a show of faith, oblations on the altar of justice, when in fact you need a little bit of reflection, right, to grow those roots that then can up overturn church walls, which seems to be mere, you know, tribal affiliation or fear of not. Um, I think the problematic tribe I want to focus on um, in at least one more poem today is Homo Americanus preform hollering at the lit conference in syllabics. This this community that we keep dancing around, the poets, who. Mm -hmm maybe dance the dance, um, talk the talk, do they walk the walk in their labor affiliations? Um, there's another poem about breath, but it's much more funny. Um, just, you know, trademark yeah. of humor here. And it's a little bit longer, but I think it's worth digging into this one. It, it also reminds me of the essay that I printed in my anthology um, series, Viz Inter Arts Interventions, the Laboristics of poetry conferences where you do talk about the 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 kinds of readings that people are you know, distinguishing between academic readings like at the AWP or bar readings or house readings or so forth but I think that um, lit conferences are their own little sphere and um, and 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 kind of play off the demarcations from your last poem Brown Lives and its mm -hmm. commentary on identities and ours yeah like no, yeah, and then it's these kind of ritualisms that sort of get embedded, like a, you know, sort of really official readings and stances, and everybody's afraid to you know to, to veer from those ritualisms. And there's just general. I have to just say, you know, just as you know, coming from other industries that I involve, just looking at that particular industry, academia, that people are scared stiff yeah. um, of making a wrong move, and and that's not useful. Yeah, that's just not useful. You know, they, and. Uh, Anyway, but uh, here's Homo Americanus, and maybe it touches on, on some of that. One, it's in three parts, okay? One, no, we don't want you to breathe in, then out. No need to stand up, stretch out, twirl your wrists. Most assuredly, no incantations are being asked of you, not a single word. Know what, Jack, Jill? Scrap the four directions. Your identities and ours besides yours on a coat rack at the door, quite comfy. How much whacking can your pinata take? Yes, you stand on stolen land. You may now 
zooms, methinks my station merits the ploy, which under these conditions is public, though you're planted on private property. We do acknowledge that, the conditions, the 1,000 directions not to take at this after-after party we call anarcho-tyranny uberalis, or simply the finance oligarchy. Please be modest, slithering on the ground, scooping up treats, subtracting from the whole our allotments of failed liberal schemes coming into view as we splinter up. Two, who won the prize? The prize among prizes, a prize of a prize, you might say, a win over one more prize to win a prize, one. Surprise, there's no prize for that or for this. Pinata sticks swung blindly all at once is more to the point, bloody point, hobbling, stumbling onto the arena of culture. But what's at a distance tracking it all or in close? Poetics as detainee marks it a fugitive in mind and gut. We were just about to jump out of here as the smoking debris began to cool before the dawn of more centrist hokum. But here we are, herding piss-poor students into the bare halls of career poet. There's exactly five things a prize can do. One, it bestoweth wings to wingless works. Two, it stancheth today's systemic wounds. Three, perchance it payeth the rent. Golly. Four, it groweth wings on the fugitive. Five, it clippeth the fugitive's new wings. Three, strategies, recalibrating tactics, kind of works. What kind of might not is you. Games abound this side of the barricades. One of them is self as designed by you. But here's another piñata at hand, popped out from nowhere, perplexing, tempting. Fellow insurrectionists, lend an ear. Identity thinking stalls, hard reset. And bullhorn this all night long, publicly. Old universalisms pen us in, where we mean to run with a new story. New stories reject catastrophizing, refuse a foregone tragicomedy, stage an alternative futurity. Identity thinking stalls, hard reset. Blindfolded, homo americanus, grab this trusty stick, grip it mightily, raise it high, and on the downswing, crack it. Now the bards scramble, now the bards bag up scraps of self whose purpose they know not what, though it's arousing, all this newfound pep. Fabulous. We have about three minutes to get through a complex poem. Um, so you, you start not wanting us to breathe in and out this time, um, scrap the full four directions and our identities on a coat rack by the door. Um, <laughs> so hilarious. How much whacking can your pinata take? I, I, I immediately thought of being beaten up for your identity to see what's inside or underneath. And by the end, all these bards, which seem to play out the word shards of identity, little selves, which are making fun of poets, bards, scraps of selves they're trying to, you know, gather up. And um, in the anarcho-tyranny uber-alice, uh, you know, after-after party, 
where land acknowledgements don't undermine our superiority, but in a way kind of shore it up. Um, the 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 part though that really amazed me was the the who who won the prize among prizes, and I'm sure you're aware of the essay by Juliana Spar and Stephanie Young that maps who tends to get prizes in the prizeocracy, the same people bestowing to the same people. Pinata sticks swung blindly all at once for the prize entering contest for people who can afford to in, enter a million of those thirty dollar contests contest, stumbling onto the arena of culture like gladiators but culture implies you know Aryan supremacy um poetics is detainee which poetics get detained well they don't get the prizes um and then finally with, with the fifth uh you know uh, I guess consequence of these prizes where it clippeth the fugitives new wings this is the place where you arrest the reader me it makes me wonder are prizes making us right like each other to get more prizes well, they don't. They're not making me write like the prize winner. Okay, yeah. but well, you, um, you did win a Best American Poetry Award, so you're doing something right. You're published yeah. by France, which is sort of. I don't know. I've been fortunate. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've got two of those actually now, um, and which is not easy to get. I understand, and you know, um, and all that. Uh, you know, it, it, admittedly, I, I, I should say that does facilitate things down down the line, or it potentially can. But but I think that um, that. Uh, you know about your your comment there about it, it clip with the fugitives wings i i think that's true i think that um when you know you you introduce undergrads you know to you know a, a super normie um you know poet who's has you know accolades to to spare and you know they think wow so that's you know i, I have to kind of i have to kind of do that to be official or to be you know and that's what that's what you know, that's what people want to hear and stuff like that. You know, so the lane that that poet, you know, holds is, you know, they're, they're at the top, they're in the front of that lane. Maybe a, a few other people are in that lane, but, um, you know, the rest are just, you know, tens of thousands of, of MFA students, you know, you know, on that lane, kind of not going anywhere. They're just surplus. They're just basically, um, you know, and not to sound like I'm not saying that the people are surplus or the concerns or their emotions are surplus. I'm saying that the institutional machinations turn their product into into surplus. And and this is a big, big problem. You know, uh, you know, we could at this point even say that there's, you know, hoarding going on. You know, there's absolute hoarding and there's hoarders of, of poetic wealth and, and, and reputation and 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 this is this is becoming a problem you know um because 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 mainly because other kinds of poetics um you know poetics let's just say that sort of suspend linear meaning or, or things like that you know cannot cannot be read cannot be talked about cannot be discussed you know because and, and so I, I think i think if, if poets or any poets are listening i think they they might understand what i'm getting at here and speaking of surplus, we have run out of time, out of surplus time. I have been talking with the singular poet, Rodrigo Toscano. While not a singularity, Toscano is um, singular, <laughs> laboring in much wider untilled fields of significance, the material determination of everyday lives of workers and that many poets ignore in their personal lyrical contemplations. Read more at rodrigotoscano.com. Support independent bookstores and buy his books. I'm Roxy Power for the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Thank you, Rodrigo. 
Thank you, Roxy. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure.